I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Joel Weinberger, a clinical psychologist and professor at the Derner School of Psychology at Adelphi University. His newest book, The Unconscious Theory, Research, and Clinical Implications, co-authored with Valentina Stoicheva, is now available. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23carl Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. I guess the logical place I'd like to begin, since we're talking about the the book that uh, Valentina and I wrote, is what prompted the book. You also said you're interested in and how you get to psychoanalysis, and they're kind of related to me. So the, the, the way I got interested in the unconscious was, was two ways, really. One was um, I'm sitting in, in, in a class, and uh, this is already in graduate school, and then I'll go back in time to where, where it started initially, and my uh, professor announces that there's no such thing as the unconscious. This is a, it's a class on motivation. And when you, I go back in time, you'll see why, why that's even more relevant than it sounds. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, he's crazy. How could you say there's no... And uh, he proceeds to present experimental findings and so on and so forth. And I thought, uh, this is not rational. This is not sane. This, I, I don't care what kind of data you show me. Um, I know that everyone knows there's an unconscious. So I started to become curious. Why would anyone believe there isn't? And there's really two answers. One is a kind of a, a psychoanalytic answer because I don't want to because then I'm not in control and uh, there are forces beyond my, my understanding and so forth, so on and so forth. Another one was philosophical as it turned out because I started looking into it. When that, that guy, Rene Descartes, some French guy, I think you probably heard of him, uh, said, I think therefore I am, he was really saying, I am aware therefore I am because you can't say, I think, but I really don't know what I'm thinking, therefore I exist. You have to say I'm aware. And then he defined the, the, uh, the world, the universe, as consisting of two things, the physical and the mental. The mental was defined as consciousness, and the physical is not mental. So therefore the unconscious is defined out of existence. It just doesn't exist anymore. And uh, people bought it because he was Descartes. And so that was the intellectual underpinning of it. 
And then the psychoanalytic underpinning of it is that we don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe it, and I know it's true. You know, uh, that, that uh, I have motivations beyond my understanding, then I, I do stupid stuff sometimes, and I look back on it, and I go, what the hell? And uh, I don't like it, and, uh, but, but I accept it, and I could understand people not wanting to accept it. So that started a kind of a 30-year uh, search into the unconscious. And then I discovered doing that, that people who study different aspects of it don't talk to each other. So if you're psychoanalytic, you learn about the unconscious by talking to your patients, by reading <clears throat> books on theory or, or so on, or case studies. But you don't read the stuff on the mind and the brain and, and the research that's being done. And if you do research, you don't read the psychoanalytic literature to understand how it happens in the real world and how it presents itself. And so they have totally different vocabularies. They have... Uh, they don't uh, believe in each other to, to a large degree. The, you know, in academia, um, a lot of academics dismiss psychoanalysis. They think psychoanalysis ended when Freud died. Actually, I think it ended in 1915. And uh, so they dismiss, they go, oh, the, the uh, penis envy, this is all so stupid. Well, no one believes that anymore. Wake up. Um, and then the psychoanalysts, many of them, not all, don't want to know about research because they get their information firsthand. And so I, they're both right, but they're also both wrong. And so I had to learn all of it. And I decided maybe I can write something where they can talk to each other. And so I tried to do that with, with, uh, with my co-author. And I don't know if I succeeded, but I gave it my best shot. So there are chapters on psychoanalysis. There's chapters on various kinds of research. I even had to put a glossary in the back because the vocabulary is so different so that people could look up words. And uh, there I am. And the way I got into the unconscious originally and psychoanalysis originally um, is I'm an undergraduate at a, at a university in the United States in New York called Stony Brook, uh, State University of New York, Stony Brook. They might as well have called it B.F. Skinner University. It was very behavioral. And I'm 18 years old, and they're teaching this stuff. And it makes sense. Okay, I believe this. Everything is behavior. I, I like it. Fine. Great. But they also said everything is due to reinforcement, that you do stuff because you're reinforced for it. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll believe that too. Uh, what makes something reinforcing? And the answer was, whatever increases the probability of behavior is reinforcing. I said, okay, but why does it do that? And it just became, it's a mathematical, arithmetic relationship. But there's got to be a reason. Why, why am I, you know, I eat because I'm hungry. I feel it. I know that I'm hungry. Um, I am lonely. I seek out companionship. And they say, well, then companionship is a reinforcer. I said, yes, but why is it a reinforcer? Well, because it increases behavior. And I, I go, okay, I, 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 you're not going to give me an answer. So I started reading and I ended up reading psychoanalysis because it does give you an answer to that. It, it asks those questions. And uh, it said, the, the reason why is you have these kinds of, if you're Freudian drives, if you're object relational, you have a need for relationships. If you're, if you're into self-psychology, you have a need for self-esteem. If you're, if you're interpersonal, you need to relate in certain ways. If, if, if you're relational, 
then, then everything is co-constructed with other people and you won't exist without it. Okay, you gave me, you've given me an answer, maybe wrong, but somewhere to go. So that got me into psychoanalysis and now I'm at B.F. Skinner University reading psychoanalysis. So, and then we segue to my grad school where there's no such thing as the unconscious and I was off to the races. Yeah, yeah, I love that you took this as a turning point instead of like trying, trying to flip it around and showing people how could you say that there's no unconscious instead of the other way around, like everybody seems to just assume that that makes sense, that there's no unconscious. <laughs> it's crazy, it's just crazy. So, but there has to be a reason, people are not stupid. So, so there had to be a reason and, and I started looking for it. I don't know if I found it, but that was the goal. And now you're at Adelphi, right? Yes, I'm at Adelphi, which is very psychoanalytically oriented. I teach in the PhD program there. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good deal. So we have very good students. Um, <clears throat> I try to teach about the unconscious. I do clinical supervision. I teach a course because I did all of this uh, study. I teach a course on the history of psychology. And so I, I've tried to weave it all together. That's amazing. I mean, Adelphi, I love Adelphi so much. I, it would have been my dream to have gone there. I'm from Miami and I couldn't imagine getting out of Miami at that point in my life. My friend, I know Jameson Webster since like high school and she had already moved to New York and she was like, come up to New York for school. And I just, my, my, from my Miami perspective, I was like, how will I ever afford to live in New York? Like, I'm just going to stay home. Um, and now I wish I had gone to Adelphi. It's like one of the few places that's so psychoanalytic. And it's, at least in the States, it's so hard to find that. It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's at the time when I first started, there were more. But uh, Boston University is no longer psychoanalytic. University of Michigan is no longer psychoanalytic. Yale is no longer psychoanalytic. Um, so th there's just a couple left. There's a City University in New York. There's Adelphi. And there's University of Tennessee, believe it or not, um, that's still psychoanalytic. And offhand, I can't think of, of another place. Now, there's some places that are integrative and, and teach some psychoanalysis, but that's pretty much it. Uh, we're, we're fading. We should realize that and do something about it, but that's, that's another podcast. <laughs> the school I went to is Nova Southeastern University in sure. Fort Lauderdale, and they apparently used to have a psychoanalytic training program, um, but by the time I got there, there were still like three analysts there, and they were like teaching electives and really trying <laughs> to keep like the psychodynamic concentration alive, but I know one of them at least has passed now, and I'm not even sure if they have that anymore. No, the CBT people have done a very good job of promoting their point of view and identifying it with science. And uh, the psychoanalysts, to be frank, have done a very poor job of promoting psychoanalysis and, and seeing that it's not unscientific. So you put the two together and uh, you have a recipe for something that's not working out very well right now. Yeah, and also these divides, like you're saying, like even within the field of like, not only there's always at conferences, people are like, well, from a cl clinical point of view, it's like this. And then the other side is like, well, from a research point of view or a philosophy point of view, it's like this. And there's so much kind of infighting, I feel like. It's so, so unnecessary. I, I tell my students when I'm uh, supervising them in research, that research is like clinical work. You, you ask a question, Nature doesn't answer you what you expected. So you, you uh, have to have an open mind and listen. 
and then change your hypothesis and move around, then your first study may not work and your second study may not work, or maybe it'll work in a way you didn't expect. And then you, what, how's that different from clinical work? You come in, what do you know immediately what your patient is up to? No, uh, that you have to listen to your patient. You may be wrong. Uh, your patient will tell you you're wrong. Uh, sometimes she'll be accurate. Sometimes she'll, she'll be resisting. It's, it's not really different. It's the same kind of a process, but somehow we've artificially separated them because the methods are somewhat different. But the, the basic idea behind them, in, at least in my mind, are the same. What do you think we can do to promote psychoanalysis? I think we have to realize uh, a few things. One is that you have to market a product. And psychoanalysis, uh, unfortunately, like everything else in the world, can be construed as a product, and that's how the world looks at things. And the CBT have, have uh, monopolized the idea that they are science, with a capital S, and then what psychoanalysis does is not science, therefore it doesn't count, therefore it's, it's silly. And some, some psychoanalysts have bought into that and said, well, it's not science and it shouldn't be science because science is stupid anyway. You're not gonna market your product doing that. Um, so you, ne you need people who are gonna come out and say it helped me. You need to do uh, that, that in fact the CBT people are not, do not have a monopoly on science. And furthermore, their claims are exaggerated. Now psychoanalysis back in the day also exaggerated its claims. We were gonna create world peace and uh, cure schizophrenia. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen. And uh, the CBT people know much better how to, how to market their stuff. I don't want to put down CBT. It's not, there's something there. But I'm obviously more psychoanalytic. And I think that uh, what psychoanalysts do, what we do, uh, is, is better for people. But we're not putting the word out. We're just sitting around in our little cocoons congratulating one another on how, what a great job we do while the world passes us by. And I think we have to get practical. We have to get out of the institutes and, and get out in the world and promote what we have. I mean, they're starting to do tele. I, I don't mean what you do on Zoom. I mean, you know, like you, you, you write into some anonymous person and get 15 minutes of, uh, uh, of encouragement. And this is now called psychotherapy. That, that has to stop. And, and we, text, we, texting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it's, it's become a business, and uh, we, we have to compete in the marketplace. I, I don't mean to sound mercenary, because I'm really not mercenary, but it's a marketplace of ideas. And if, if you don't promote, like Freud was a great promoter of ideas. So uh, if, if he wasn't, psychoanalysis wouldn't have made the impact that it did. And he knew that. You know, he purposely didn't work out, but he purposely picked Jung as his successor because he was a, an Aryan Swiss guy and he thought, uh, you know, you know the history. So he had that in his head and he was right. Uh, not to pick Jung, but to, to, to understand that you have to promote uh, what you have. Otherwise, it's, it's not gonna happen. And I think psychoanalysis sometimes is too satisfied with itself. Uh, we know we're better, therefore uh, we don't care what you think. That's not, that's not a good attitude. No, and I think I, what you said earlier too, like the reason I ended up in the school that I did well was the one by my house, but also when I was in undergrad and was learning all about Skinner, <laughs> I didn't understand that the professor was actually saying that this is like the only way of working with people. I just thought like, sure, 
you know, you can reinforce behaviors. That makes sense. And just like with CBT, like, sure, you reframe the way you're thinking that could help when you're managing stress and not going into some sort of depressive spiral. Sure, that could help. But I just thought that these were like different areas of human the way of being and different ways that you could work to kind of cope with life and stress and that everyone sort of knew that you still had to get to the deeper underlying issues so that those stressors and those symptoms don't happen. Yeah, they don't, they don't get that. You know, I actually met Skinner. Um, I did a postdoc at Harvard and uh, he was interested in meeting me for whatever reason. I think, uh, well, I'll tell you what he said. I did some research on subliminal, uh, uh, stimulation because I was interested in the unconscious and to him that was a different way of presenting stimuli so he was interested in learning how one presents stimuli in this different way but in the course of the conversation he told me that he was not anti-psychoanalytic and if you read his work he the only non-behaviorist he cites favorably is Freud and it's true so if you read his book uh, 1950s books Science and Human Behavior, and I'm not coming up with other names, but that's the big one. Uh, he cites Freud, and he cites Freud favorably. Where he differs is he says, I'm not going into some internal agency like the id. Freud observed human behavior. He understood what made it happen, reinforcement, you know, in, in Skinner's terminology, and he was brilliant. And so, you know, there doesn't have to be an antagonism. There can be a conversation. You can disagree with me, fine. But let's agree on the central findings. This happens, that happens, and then we could disagree on why or, or whatever, instead of you don't exist, only I exist. And I, I think both sides uh, are, are, are doing some of that. I, I don't really talk about that part of it in, in my book, but uh, that kind of motivated me. Um, well, what do you talk about in your book? All right, so um, I start the book with the history uh, that was stimulated by that professor who declared to me that there's no such thing as the unconscious. So I, I zip through, uh, zip, it took me years to zip, but uh, I, uh, I go through Descartes and, and other philosophers and other thinkers till I get to the founding of psychology. And academic psychology was founded uh, as the study of consciousness by uh, Wundt and then later Titchener. So therefore nothing else existed. And then the behaviorist said, that's stupid, let's throw out consciousness instead of let's add the unconscious. And now the mind didn't exist at all. And uh, finally, so I got through the history of finally how academia finally got to the unconscious and why it took so long, it took till the 1980s actually, and even the 1990s before anyone systematically studied it. So then I go through the different areas that, are, that, are, that have been studied, implicit memory, implicit learning, uh, heuristics, um, uh, affect versus cognition, embodied uh, cognition, and implicit motivation. And I also go through uh, several of the psychoanalytic theoretical views of the unconscious, and I try to critically uh, analyze them and point out convergences and divergences. And then I draw clinical implications for all of this. I think one of the things that we have not done is all our clinical models are decades old. And uh, we've learned some stuff since then. And we might want to incorporate those things into our theories and into our practice. At the same time, the theorists and researchers need to incorporate what clinicians have found into their understanding of, of the mind because clinicians deal directly with it. So I think I'm trying to say, to clinicians, there's new stuff out there. You should know it. 
and it will help you in your clinical practice. And I'm trying to say to researchers, people have been studying human beings intensively one-on-one for decades. You might want to know a little bit about that. And uh, here's what I think, whatever that's worth, uh, is valuable on each side. Here's what I think the clinical implications are. And now you take it and do something with it. So, so the book, each chapter, has, except the psychoanalytic chapter, because the clinical implications are obvious, each research chapter ends with a section on clinical implications. And then the final chapter draws a model of what the, the mind, how, how we understand the mind to function now, we'll get to that in a second, and what the clinical implications overall are. So we, we now, you need to know what the brain does in order to know what the mind does, because they're the same. Just one is a physical manifestation of the other, or one is a, uh, a non-physical manifestation of the other, at least that's what I believe. And you know, there's models of the mind that you have little pieces in your head. That's the one that we all are most familiar with. This part does language, and this part does, um, you know, makes your hand move, and, and this part controls your emotions, and this part does this, and that part does that. That's called modularity, little modules in your head. Then there's another model that says, uh, well, but we do learn stuff. So that means that neurons have to connect with each other, which means that we're organized, and this is true, associatively, which psychoanalysis has known since the beginning. We're not organized rationally. We're not organized hierarchically. We're organized associatively. If I say to you, night, and I say, what comes to mind? You're going to say day, moon, sun. And if I say, well, how did that, how'd you get that? You're going to go, I don't know, or you'll, you'll make something up. You'll say, I, I said day because it's the opposite of night. And then I'll ask you, well, did that go through your mind? Did you say, I think I'll do the opposite? No, because things are connected associatively. Freud understood that with free association. And now connectionism, which is another model of the mind, understands that in fact, since neurons are connected by being associated with each other, your thoughts are connected by being associated with each other. And, uh, that would put no limits on anything. Then everything can be associated with everything else. And we're, we're, we're not quite that flexible or that chaotic, depending on how you look at it. So the third model of the mind, which is called neural reuse, says we don't really have modules that this one does relationships and this one does uh, affect and this one. We have little smaller pieces in our head that do very specific things. And then we combine them in new ways. And associatively, like the connectionists say, but not so broadly like every neuron, but with these pieces. Am I making sense what I'm yeah. trying to say? Uh, okay, mm. and, uh, and that's how the mind works. And the example is, you know, if we evolved, which I believe we did, to, to be who we are, and we evolved these modules, we don't have a reading module in our brain. It came too late. We don't have a writing module. We don't have a guitar playing module. So what we do have is other pieces of the brain that evolve for other reasons that can be combined in new and novel ways that enable us to read, to write, to do art, to make music, and so on. And that's how to understand the mind. Now, once you understand the mind that way, you understand that we evolved to be a certain way, but the world isn't that way anymore. So right away, we've got problems. We, we evolved to live on an African savanna in small extended family groups. And now I live on Long Island with, you know, millions of people. I didn't evolve to do that. I evolved to like the uh, sweet tastes. So I like to eat chocolate and, uh, you know, salty potato chips and, uh, and so on. So I'm now overweight. Um, but it was good on the African savanna. 
And it was good to have these urges on the African savanna. So unlike Freud, you know, which, which to me, why are we so screwed up? And Freud, it's like, oh, we have this conflict built in. We're all screwed up. It's going to be. And I think it's more the world doesn't fit what we evolved to do as much. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And so we learn to do things the best we can, but our, our tools are not tools for living in an urban society, uh, in my case, uh, or whatever society we live in. So we get messed up. Um, and we need to understand that we think associatively and not uh, logically. We're not irrational. We're irrational. We just do what we do. Sometimes it turns out badly. Anyway, I'm getting long-winded, but that's the model of the mind that, that we come up with in the book. And then we draw clinical implications from it. It's more like you're not screwed up. You are the way you are because you're a human being. And the world is the way it is. Sometimes there's a fit. Sometimes there's not a fit. You, you adapt to it as best you can. And as a child, you have fewer options. So you adapt to that, that environment as best you can. The environment changes. You still use your old adaptation uh, techniques. They know you, you have better ones now, but you're still stuck with the old ones because you're used to them. You're stuck with the ways that you would have adapted in the Pleistocene era to go hunting and gathering, which, you know, to me, hunting and gathering is picking up the phone and ordering dinner. Um, so... Anyway, that's all in there. So history, psycho, psychoanalytic theories of the unconscious, all the different research areas, then the neurocognitive theories, and then trying to put them all together and, and, and make sense out of it. It's amazing. And I love you getting long-winded. This is all really, really interesting. And I think I, my, I have so many different things I want to say. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to say is that my uh, internship was at a brain injury clinic. And I felt like even though I was interested in psychoanalysis and had studied with a psychoanalyst at school as much as possible, I did work in hospitals most of the time for training and then did my internship at the brain injury clinic. Um, and I just learned so many different things about like that our common knowledge about the brain are just so not true. Right. <laughs> like you're saying these different modules and people, most of them had closed head injuries where they would like hurt a part of their, of their brain. And, you know, through doing all these exercises with them and therapy and rehabilitation, they're able to like grow new neurons and, yep. and regain functioning. Even if a part of the brain that supposedly is the only part that does that is damaged. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that's just, there's so many misconceptions. Right, you can you can combine the brain in new and, and better ways, and it may not work exactly as it did the, the originally, but it'll work okay. And and essentially, that's reading. That's I think why we have so much individual variation in the ability to read and write. We didn't evolve to read and write. There's not much variation in walking. You know, we evolved to walk, but we didn't evolve to read and write. So I read very quickly. I have a son who reads very slowly. I mean, what's he doing? He's my son. Go read fast. Um, because the brain combines in, in, in however way it's going to combine to get, the, to get the job done. And what you're describing is, okay, this part of the brain has been damaged, so now this part of the brain has to do it. Well, if this was the only part that would do it, then it's over for you. But it's not the case. Now, it's harder the older you get, as you know, but you've got to form new connections and, and maybe new neurons, but even without new neurons. The old neurons will now connect in new ways and uh, you'll get the job done. And the idea is to get the job done. 
Exactly. And I love this point that you made um, that our society has just evolved so much faster than clearly we are able to. I've been thinking about that a lot lately too, and having a lot of empathy for, for people, for humans as a whole, because of course, like, there's a lot of problems happening right now societally and politically and everybody's kind of upset and you know sometimes you feel like you know why can't people get along and all these kinds of things um but then i think about like how fast technology evolves like just in my lifetime imagine like looking at my parents trying to use this technology and then you just think you know a few generations ago none of this existed and it was a completely different society and like how fast people are expected to kind of keep up with all of this um when like you said we're not we're not made to do this <laughs> no we're, we're made to live in an area that has food that we can find because we're hunter-gatherers that's what we evolved to do in small groups. Instead, we now live in giant groups. We don't hunt and gather anymore. Um, and, and so we don't know quite how to adjust. And the in-group and out-group partially evolves from that, right? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm hanging around with an extended family and you show up with your extended family to my little spot on the river, I'm not happy to see you. I've only got so much fruits over here and I've got fish and water and uh, I don't want to share it. Just look at wolves and lions and, and, and dogs. They do it. Chimpanzees, if we want to pick a close relative. They fight each other when a second group comes by. So we're built to do that too to some degree, but now we can't, we don't. So we, we uh, outsource it to some ridiculous characteristic like skin color or, or sexual orientation or, or, or religious orientation, and we create the in-group and the out-group. I think if we had insight into that, it wouldn't be so bad. Like, what's a harmless version of it? Sports, right? So I'm a New York Yankee fan. And I say, well, why? Well, I grew up in the Bronx. They didn't grow up in the Bronx. They don't know me. But I they're my in-group. And I don't like the Boston Red Sox. I've never met them. That's a harmless version of the in-group, out-group. And, and it works fine. I root. I get happy. I get sad. I get angry. It's not harmless if I decide I don't like somebody because they have darker skin than me or, or a different sexual orientation than me, but the dynamics are similar. I just need to have insight into it so I can overcome it and do the harmless version of it, uh, you know, sublimate it, so to speak. Um, the other thing that's bothering me lately, I wrote a blog on it for Psychology Today, is this whole politicization, I don't know if it's happening in Sweden, of wearing a mask. If you wear a mask, then you're somehow weak character to some people and you don't believe in individual rights. And if you don't wear a mask, you're a selfish jerk who doesn't care about the safety of others. And I'm on the side of wearing masks, so you see where I, where, where I, where I lead. But also, we're supposed to isolate from each other now. What's human nature when you're in trouble, when you're scared? Human nature when you're in trouble and you're scared is to affiliate. You wanna be with people You'll feel safer. You want to hang out with others you know, like chimpanzees do. And what are we told to do now that we're scared and anxious? We're told not to hang out with others. It's not natural. That's why people are having, let's understand that rather than straight out condemning people and say something like, look, it sucks to be isolated. I know it sucks. It's not your nature. You want to be with the people you love. You want to affiliate with, with, with others. You want to meet new people. That's normal. However, you also have a brain that can override that kind of thing 
And here's why, instead of condemning one side or condemning the other side, a neighbor of mine, I was walking around wearing a mask. And he says, why are you wearing a mask? And I'm looking at him like, you know why I'm wearing a mask. You're looking to start a fight with me is what you're doing. And I'm not gonna bite, but why would you wanna start a fight with me? Because you're being defensive. I'm, my wearing a mask is somehow communicating to you that you're a bad person and you want to, you know, that makes you uncomfortable. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna uh, project and you're gonna, you're gonna be angry at me because you assume I'm angry at you or whatever your dynamic is. So what I said instead, hopefully it worked, is that I'm wearing a mask because I'm trying to protect you. Now, what answer can he have for that? Screw you, I wanna die. Um, now, I hope I didn't imply, and you're being selfish because you're not protecting me, but that's the kind of thing I mean, to understand what human beings are, and uh, things are built into us. They used to work, most of the time they still work, but in the pandemic, they're not working. So we have to recognize that. Yeah, we have to have, we have to, consciously not do some things that might feel more instinctual to for, be for the greater good. Yeah. I leave the house every time I go out. Uh, I have two sons. I took them to a, a distancing camp, if you can believe that, this morning. And all three of us forgot our masks and had to go back and get it. Because it's, it's not natural to wear a mask. So I don't think we're bad people, you know, so we were delayed by five or 10 minutes and we got our mask. But it's consciousness that came out and said, wait a second, I need to override my natural inclination. I'm going to have fun. I don't have fun wearing masks. So uh, I, I need to realize that in this case I have to, and we can do that. And hopefully one of the things I talk about in the book is if you practice an adaptive behavior often enough, it will become automatic and unconscious, just like your maladaptive behavior, whatever motivated it originally, you've now practiced it for 20 years. You did it over and over and over again. It's part of who you are now. It happens automatically without thought, not only for motivated reasons, but partly because it's what you do. Likewise, you know from, from treating patients, the insight isn't the end of it. You go, oh, now I know why I do that. All right, so stop. And they don't. Now you have the working through process. You have to keep going and going and reminding and doing because now the new way has to become automatic and unconscious. So uh, hopefully wearing a mask won't become that automatic and unconscious and this will end, but that's the idea. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times uh, with patients, they're able to see eventually that like not only insight into their patterns, but that these patterns develop for a reason and that they were adaptive at some time and then you just keep doing them automatically and you're in different situations you're not at home with your parents anymore maybe this worked really well when you were home with your parents but now that you're with these other people or in this other place uh it's not working so well for you and they just have to kind of step back and consciously choose not to do that pattern that feels really automatic so that they can make new decision about a kind of different direction that they'd like to go and overcome the anxiety that, that comes with changing. So uh, uh, I think an extreme example is dissociation. So you're a child and you're being horribly abused, say, by your parent. You can't run away. You can't fight back. No one's listening to you, or at least so you believe. So you retreat inside your own head. That's the best you can do. And it's, it doesn't work, but it's the best you can do. Now you're an adult. You can run away. You can fight back. You can report it. 
but you're so used to dissociating that you do that instead. And then if someone tells you not to dissociate, when you try not to, all the anxiety that the dissociation helped you avoid pops up and you have to deal with that. And as clinicians, we, we understand that and have to do that. But it's, it's no longer only what motivated it. It's, I've been dissociating since I'm six years old. Now I'm 36 years old. So I've been dissociating for, for 20 years. And now you're telling me not to. I, I don't trust it. It doesn't feel right anymore. So boom. What, I'm, what I hope the book will do, and I hope when, if people read it that it will do this, is get them to further the dialogue between clinical people and researchers, but also the dialogue between researchers. If I do research on implicit memory, I don't know the research on implicit motivation and vice versa. I don't even know the research on implicit learning. Those three areas just, I spend my whole life doing one of them, and I never talk to the other guy. I think one area that, for example, that really can be integrated is what's called embodied cognition. And what that shows us is that, uh, and I think psychoanalysts have known this, although they may not have called it that, is that a lot of our thinking is, it, it, it's, that seems mental is physical. I'll give you a, a, an example of some of the research that shows this. If you give something, someone something warm to hold, like a beverage, versus something cold to hold, they get friendlier because the same neurons that fire for physical warmth fire for feeling. There's, there's a reason why someone says, I feel warmly. If you think about it, it's a crazy thing to say. What do you mean I feel warmly? Or, My temperature didn't go up. Or I feel close to you. Well, I, I'm not physically closer to you, but it's the same neurons. So if I raise the temperature in the room, you'll feel friendlier. If you are friendly, you'll imagine the temperature in the room has gone up two degrees things like that. That means metaphors are incredibly important when treating patients. It also means the physical and the mental are not two separate realms. They're the same. And you can communicate both. So, so uh, depression is a burden that can be lifted. It feels heavy on my shoulders. I feel lighter. Those, those things are usually thought of as, as metaphors that don't have concrete meaning, but they do. Depression really does feel heavy. And it does feel like a weight. And it does feel when, when you, when you uh, feel better as though a weight has been lifted, literally, not just figuratively. And I think that's important for researchers to understand, and they're starting to understand it. And I think it's important for clinicians to understand. Researchers do things very simply. So they'll, they'll, uh, they'll make a concrete example that doesn't have much relevance clinically, like the example of holding a beverage. I'm not going to bring a patient into the room and say, here, have some tea. And now you feel better. But that I know that research enables me to realize that the physical and the mental are not different. And we can talk in physical terms about mental stuff, about emotional stuff, and it will affect the person in, in a positive way. So I think embodied cognition is very important. I think the automization stuff, which we talked about briefly earlier, where you, you need to practice the new behavior. It's not enough to know that, it, that, that what you should do. You have to actually practice it till it too becomes automatic. That's not really psychoanalytic because you've already gotten the insight. You already know what's going on. But somehow you're not better because there's another step. Because the way your brain and mind work is it has to practice this thing. And when it practices it enough, psychoanalysis calls it working through, which takes forever often. Um, 
then you'll behave more adaptively. It doesn't end when suddenly, ah, I know why I did that. So I think those kinds of things are important. I think implicit learning is important. You know, Freud uh, incorrectly talked about childhood amnesia as a result of repression. We now know that childhood amnesia is simply that explicit memory doesn't develop, period, until you're like four years old. That's why you don't remember anything from four or below. But implicit memory is there from birth. And so you do remember things, you just can't consciously bring them to mind, but they still affect you. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Implicit learning says that whenever two things hook together in your environment, your mind treats them as though one caused the other, even though they just randomly appeared. If they randomly appear a couple of times, you think something's going on. It's the basis of superstition. But it's also the basis of a lot of our behavior. We need to understand that. And I'll do one more, uh, one that I didn't mention, attribution theory. Everyone who's taken an undergraduate course remembers attribution theory. But here's, here's the deal that I think clinicians need to, to learn from. And the attribution theorists need to make this implication clearer. We all are built with a bias. If I behave in a certain way, that's because of the environment. You know, uh, if, but if you behave in a certain way, it's because of your character. So for example, you're driving and someone cuts you off. What an a-hole that person is. You, you've now characterized their personality. If you cut someone off, well, you were in a hurry, they were driving too slowly, uh, you had all kinds of reasons. So that's the research. Now let's make a clinical implication. So I'm the therapist, you're the patient, could be vice versa, but we'll pretend it that way. And you tell me something. I immediately attribute what you did to your character, and I interpret it as though this is who you are. You as the patient say, no, 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 here's why I did it. And you present me with the environmental circumstances and your reasons for doing it, whereupon I decide you're resisting, and you decide I'm unempathic. What's really going on sometimes is, I have a bias to attribute what you do to your character, and I'm now exhibiting that bias. You have a bias to attribute what you just did to the situation, and now you're exhibiting that bias. What we need to do is both know that and back off, and me as a therapist say, well, how do you behave in other situations? Is this consistent? If it's consistent, it's character. But if it's unique to this situation, then I was wrong, and it's situational. And if, if a therapist knows that, they will override temporarily their inclination to attribute patient characteristics to personality. And if the patient knows it, they will be more open to hearing that maybe this is my character and not, and not situational. So I think patients should be told that. Just here's what the research shows. Here's what happens. And things, things that you do had a purpose at one time. Uh, can I tell one more story? Yeah. Okay. So I, I was on an airplane flying from California to New York. It's a six-hour flight. And uh, I wrote about this in, in the Huffington Post because it struck me as crazy. So an announcement comes over. Uh, the flight attendant announces, is there a doctor on the plane? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, someone's had a heart attack. Someone's had a stroke. What's going to happen? This is terrible. Uh, Time passes. Is there a nurse? I thought, oh, no doctor. So they're looking for a nurse. Uh, And then is there a dentist? And now I said, what? Someone has a toothache? I I don't get this now. My wife, who's much smarter than I am, calls the flight attendant over and says, someone having an anxiety attack? And they say, yes. And their logic was to give this person a pill 
So that's why they went to doctor, nurse, or and, and passengers are now passing forward uh, Xanax and, and other kinds of pills to give to this patient. The patient wants the plane to land, patient, that's me, my slip. The passenger wants the plane to land because she's freaking out. She's having an anxiety attack. The plane's not gonna land and they wanna calm her down. So anyway, my wife volunteers me because I, 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 I do a lot of work with anxiety. And I say, okay, let me see what I can do. I go up to the, uh, the passenger, I introduce myself. I do, I think what you would have done or any decent therapist would have done. I'm not trying to say I did something wonderful. I'm just trying to make a point. I establish eye contact, I talk, who are you, what's going on, and so on. But what I did I think that might be a little different is I said, listen, anxiety exists to help you escape from a dangerous situation. And what you normally do when you're anxious is leave the situation and then you won't be anxious anymore. Now you can't do that because you're on an airplane and they're not gonna land and it's closed in and you can't do what comes naturally to you when you're anxious. You have to not do that and that's why you're freaking out. So I'm not doing psychoanalysis, I'm, I'm explaining that the purpose of anxiety. This, this calmed her down to some degree. I can't help but tell the other stupid thing they did. So they're handing me pills. And she says, I don't want to put something in my body. I don't know what it is. I said, and I don't want you to. You know, take the pills and give them back. Because this would make her crazier and, and would make me crazier. Then they say, we have an oxygen tank. We should give her oxygen. And I say, uh, oxygen increases hyperventilation. She's hyper hyperventilating and you want to make it worse uh, I don't think we need oxygen if you have a paper bag she could breathe in there and anyway so what worked was explaining to her the purpose of anxiety why she couldn't act in the way that anxiety allow uh, is, is asking her to act and and relating and she calmed down and I went back to my seat telling her if she needed to talk again I was just a few rows back about an hour later, she needed to talk again. And we made it to the, to the airport without incident. And I couldn't help but remember all those incidents where patients hit each other over the head with bottles. And I'm guessing, I don't have to guess, these flight attendants know what to do with a terrorist. They know what to do if, if an engine fails, but they don't know what to do if a patient is anxious, if a passenger is anxious. Which one of those three things happens the most often? I don't think it's terrorism or, or, or engine failure. The most common thing is anxiety, and they have no clue how to deal with it. They're giving pills and, and oxygen and yelling. So I brought up that example as I explained the function of anxiety to this person. And when she understood it, it didn't seem so alien and freakish and, and panicky. She was scared to be on an airplane, and she couldn't get off. So that made her more scared. If she was scared to be by a waterhole, she'd leave. If she was scared to be on street A, she'd go to street B. She can't do that now. So, of course, she got more frightened. Anyway, that, that, that's a clinical use of, of uh, understanding the psychology of what's going on and what the research shows. Yeah, I think it would be really helpful if more people in general and more professions 
uh, knew a bit more about psychology in, or at least even like kind of basic humanistic training of just like how to like reflect people and how to like meet people and build rapport like you were saying in the beginning make eye contact and these sort of things because even like working in hospitals you know a lot of people working in hospitals don't have this kind of basic <laughs> kind of therapy skills that I feel like could really mitigate a lot of problems on a kind of basic level. That's kind of what I mean by marketing. We need to, we have skills and they're teachable. Uh, not, not all of them, but certain basic ones are teachable and they're useful instead of this idea that if I uh, somehow engage in psychology, I, I demonstrated a weak character. This is nuts. If I break my arm, and I don't go to have it set, it will eventually heal. And maybe it'll end up crooked, I don't know, but eventually it will heal. No one thinks that I'm weak to have my broken arm put in a sling, but somehow I'm weak if I'm suffering from anxiety or depression and I go to someone to help me deal with it better. That's a marketing issue to me. That's a cultural issue, it needs to be changed. And there's ways to change it, we should do it. And, and we don't. There's ways to change uh, people behaving in a prejudiced fashion, but we don't do it. We just say, bad. And, and it, 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 that's not going to work. You, you know from seeing patients, you don't tell the patient, what you're doing is stupid and bad. And then they say, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you told me that. I, 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 I'm going to stop now. Yeah, they wouldn't be defensive at all. <laughs> no, of course not. And they would immediately thank you. So... Um, that's my soapbox. That's amazing. Um, one last thing. I sure. just love Freud so much. Do you have anything else you want to say about Freud? <laughs> I, I too love Freud uh, while recognizing that he died in 1939. I think what Freud is, he's appreciated for a lot of things. He's also put down for things that uh, he shouldn't be put down for. But one of the things I think he's not appreciated for is one of his major accomplishments. They, they now talk about, oh, he didn't invent the unconscious and he didn't invent repression. Okay, that's all true. Here's what he did do. There was one string, a positivistic uh, thread in, in, in culture and in history that talked about demonstrating that things work and why they work and a way of investigating. And there was another string that talked about the unconscious as somehow connected to nature and mystical and they were opposed to each other. He integrated them into one system. So now we have the unconscious connected to nature, which used to end up in pantheism, the idea that God is nature, and the positivistic root that said, you need to investigate things systematically. And those were going in two, I, I talk about it in, in the book, they were absolutely opposed to each other, going in two opposite directions. And Freud, integrated them. He put them together. It was a, an amazing work of genius to be able to do that. Instead of saying, oh, someone mentioned repression, you know, when Nietzsche talked about repression and Nietzsche talked about uh, Apollonian uh, uh, process and, and, and uh, Dionysian process, that's really the hidden ego. Fine. So why didn't he invent the way of investigating human beings? So what Freud did was take all of that and put them together. It's an incredible that someone was able to do that. So I, I'm still in awe of Freud. 
I'm in awe for it. I love, I get little fascinations with other theorists and then I always end up going back to Freud. Um, and also I hate when people do things like that, like, oh, well, he didn't say this first. It's like, of course, all of our work builds off of, off of work that came before. That's, that should be, that's just great. Isn't that great? How else would humans build humanity? <laughs> There's a famous uh, quote by Isaac Newton, not known for being a stupid man when he was being praised, he uh, said, you know, if I've seen further than other people, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. So does that mean that Newton did nothing? Of course not. He changed the Western thinking. He changed the world. He changed everything. But he didn't start from scratch. So why should Freud have started from scratch? Now, part of that might be that Freud liked to make it sound like he came up with it out of nowhere. So that was a, a, a flaw in his character. So good, he wasn't perfect. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, but he, what he did was incredible. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Joel Weinberger. His new book, The Unconscious Theory, Research, and Clinical Implications is now available. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry, available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated Just don't like pee and fuck in the pool. Bin word. 
fact be, fact associated, be associated with, Charles, Charles both once said, distinguish, distinguish between, between rooftops and, and basements. So when we so re-enter the scene, physical, before we, reproduction, reproduction and, and was the word, God, and go to God. Let's applaud, Let's applaud in, future in future whatsoever. whatsoever. To honor, to honor my lineage with another, with another of identity, there is someone, there is someone I, produced by, by and for. The people, the people are, going are going to put in, in gender, gender identity. identity. You, you in, the word, in the word. Believe, believe in any space, space as, well as well as the one, the one they, they hugged. Returning, returning or, anywhere, or anywhere really. The, the, the sun god, the sun god is, the is the ruler. 